You're listening to teaching from the Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. chance to to play basketball this week, and and it's a little ironic. I I love to play basketball, but I'm not very good. I I can't jump. I mean, I have like a .5 vertical uh, on a good day with the wind. I I, I can't dribble. I'm slower than Christmas. I I can't shoot, but about the only thing I can do is rebound. And, and, And when you shoot like me, you have a lot of opportunities to rebound. Uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that I realize, hey, I'm, as soon as I shoot it, I, I might as well run to the rim because I'm going to try to get the rebound. When you shoot and miss, how do you recover? Well, what do you do? do can you rebound from failure? As Monica mentioned, Peter was a person that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And last week, we talked about how Peter denied Christ three different times before the rooster crowed. He was confident. He said, no, I will never deny you, Jesus. Jesus, you can count on me. But then when times got rough, Peter denied Christ three different times. And we talked about when that rooster crowed, how that had to be a constant reminder of his failure. It had to say, oh, Peter. You're the worst of the worst. He, he had to live in shame. And, and then we talked about, do you have a rooster? Do you have a rooster that when you fell and when you mess up, does it crow? And then I shared with you a quote from Mark Batterson last week. It says, the Satan prowls like a lion, but he crows like a rooster. Right? Have, have you been there with me where, man, you failed and Satan just reminds you over and over and over again about how you messed up? Revelation tells us, describes Satan this way, describes Satan as the accuser. Satan isn't just a liar. He's not just a tempter. He's not just a destroyer, but he's an accuser. It says, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters have been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them for God day and night. They have defeated him by what? By the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. Satan is the accuser. He tries to suffocate us with accusations. Now, many of you know I, I have three boys and, and one of the things that a couple of the boys tend to do is they tend not to close the back door on my truck very well. And this makes my battery go down. And after like the 30th time, I lose it. Probably more like the second or third time, but, I, but you know, in church we exaggerate a lot, and so that's, that's fair game. But after the 30th time, man, I blow it, and, and I get angry, and I get mad, and I say things I shouldn't say. And the accuser says, you are the worst father ever. You are terrible. You, you, your kids are going to be damaged forever. You should never get up and preach, especially about being a father, because you are the worst. But when that happens, I I, I want you to tell Satan something, because I have a feeling you've been there with me, right? You've been there where Satan just kind of reminds you over and over and tells you how bad you are. I, I want you to tell Satan this. You can't make me ashamed, Satan. 
Repeat that with me. You can't make me ashamed, Satan. You can accuse me all day long and all night long, but you can't make me ashamed. Now, here's why. Because we have an advocate. John 14, 26 says, but when the Father sends the what? Advocate. As my representative, that is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I've told you. We have an advocate, and the advocate is our defender. And so he can, Satan can accuse us over and over, but guess what? Our advocate is greater than the accuser. The advocate is our defender. The advocate convicts us of our sin. It says, hey, there's something wrong here. You, you need to repent. You need to confess your sins. We need to do a little heart surgery. The advocate says, I want the best for you. So when I blow it, the advocate says, Ronnie, what's going on here? And well, what's going on here? You, you need to go apologize to your kids. What's going on? And I, and I say, God, these kids, man, I tell them the same thing over and over again, and they don't listen to me. They just don't get it. And God says, man, I can relate. I tell you things over and over again, and you don't get it. What's wrong with you? I said, God, that's a little personal, don't you think? <laughs> he says, no, I, I show you kindness, and I show you grace, and I show you forgiveness. You need to do the same thing. But here's the thing. The advocate is different than the accuser because the advocate wants what's best for me. The advocate says, hey, you are not... The, your identity is not that what, what your deed is. You're, you're, the, the, the advocate says, hey, that's something that you did, but that's not who you are. Aren't you so thankful that we have an advocate? John chapter 21. Or, uh, how, did, how did Peter deal with failure? How did he rebound from failure? Peter found forgiveness and restoration in Christ. Christ offers that same forgiveness at the cross, which redeems us all. When we look at John chapter 21, that's going to be where we're going to camp out today. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there, we'll also have it up on screen. But just let me give you a little bit of background. Jesus has been on trial. It was at kangaroo court. He's been beaten. He's crucified. John, the apostle John, and several of the women are at the foot of the cross. But my question is, where is Peter? Peter was this top man with the apostles. He was all around Jesus. He was what we said in the kind of the inner three. But where is Peter in this time? Well, was he following Jesus from a distance? Did he have his binoculars? He was kind of, he didn't really want to be seen. Was he hiding? Because he was so hurt because of his shame, because of his failure. Where was he at? He, he, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us where Peter was at. So we assume that he didn't hear the final words of Jesus. We assume that he wasn't there when Joseph of Arimathea was preparing him for burial. We assume that he wasn't there when Jesus was put into the tomb and the big rock was put there. Peter, where are you at? But then we know as we continue, 
about 48 hours later, so on Sunday morning, less than 48 hours later, after Jesus' crucifixion, the women came to the tomb, and they found a large stone rolled away, and there was an angel inside that tomb, and they saw a young man clothed in white robes sitting on the right side, and the women were shocked. I mean, that's where Jesus was at, and all of a sudden they come, and what's going on here? But the angel said, don't be alarmed or don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. Amen. That's right. He is risen from the dead. Isn't that good news? Look, this is where they laid the body. He's supposed to be here, but he's not here anymore. Now go and tell his disciples, including who? including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you before he died. I wonder what Peter thought when he heard those news, when he heard that news. Hey, guess what? Jesus has risen from the dead, and he wants you to know that this happened. Did it bring excitement? Because you know that he was mourning, and his master had died, and, and he knew that Jesus had been executed. And then he hears the news, and so was he excited? Or was it, okay, you know what? Jesus has risen, and he also wants to talk to me. And he might have a couple of different emotions there. On one side, he's like, hey, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe he will restore me. Maybe he still cares about me. But then there's another side that says, ooh, Jesus wants to talk to me. You ever been there? Like that conversation that your boss wants to come and talk to you? And you're like, it could be to praise you, it could be to restore you, or it could be to really have that difficult conversation with you. We see in Luke that Luke 24, 34 tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter. Yet no details are given. And I've asked God over and over this week, I said, God, I really wish I knew what took place here. Did, did, you just, did Jesus just appear to Peter? Say, hey, I'm here. And then I'm out. Say, hey, just what you know, I truly have risen. Or did they have a conversation? Did they have a heart-to-heart? I, I kind of don't think they had a heart-to-heart because in John chapter 21, we're going to see that they really have a heart-to-heart. But, but I don't know. You, you keep on going further and we're going to see that Jesus appears to the apostles and to many of his followers, and he shows them the wounds, and he shows them the scars. And then, John chapter 21, Peter and about six other apostles, they go out fishing. And they're fishing all night long. They're throwing out the nets, and they don't catch anything. And then they hear a voice from shore. That voice says, hey, have you caught anything? That's like the worst question when you haven't caught anything. When you've been skunked, that's the last thing that you want to hear. And then this voice says, hey, go ahead and throw the nets on the right side of the boat. You're like, what? We've been fishing all night. We fished this whole area. But when you're desperate, you'll try anything to catch fish. And so they did. They threw it on the right side of the boat, and they got some. They got so many that the net 
uh, there were so many fish in it, they couldn't haul in the net. I mean, these are big, strong guys, and they couldn't haul in the net. Last time that Peter had such a miraculous haul, one day he was down by the sea, and, and Jesus comes along. He says, hey, I want to use your boat. And Jesus uses it as a pulpit, and he preaches and teaches. And Peter and the gang had already been fishing all night as well, and they hadn't caught anything that night, and they were drying the nets. And, and Peter and Jesus says, hey, I, I want you to go out back fishing. And, and Peter, I mean, he's been doing this all of his life. And, and Jesus says, go ahead and do this. And it's the wrong time at the wrong place. I mean, in deep water at this time, that's not normally when you catch fish. But Peter obeyed Jesus because that was his Lord. And so he goes out and he catches this miraculous haul that it breaks the nets. There's so many fish in there. And Peter is just amazed. And it's at this point in time that Jesus says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And so this had to be going back into Peter's mind. Man, this is amazing. We're catching all of this fish suddenly. And, and, and guess what? In our text it says that John recognizes that it's the Lord. He says to Peter, it is the Lord. And, and Peter, he's got his Speedo or his underoos on and, and because that's how they fished back then. And so he puts on some clothes and, man, he's swimming and he's, he's running to shore because it is the Lord. It is Jesus. And he comes running to him. And, and Jesus has breakfast, some breakfast tacos going over a charcoal fire. He's got some breakfast going on there for him. And and man, they're just hanging out. And man, it's just a sweet time. I mean, yes, they knew that Jesus had been executed and now he's spending time with them. And it's just this unbelievable experience. Jesus says, hey, bring some of that fish that you caught, really that he caught. I mean, if you technically about it, I mean, he said, hey, fish go into this net and that's what happened. And they, they, they count it. And it's 153 large fish. Not small fish, large fish. Now, I don't know why it was 153. I'm sure that there's something symbolic about it, but someone way smarter than me is going to have to tell you the answer to that. I, I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Yet, catch this, yet the net hadn't torn. And this was a miracle in itself. And so we come, and and they're having breakfast, and then John tells us after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says, yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told them. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you what? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know that I love you. Then take, then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Third time, this is getting a little redundant, right? Peter must be a slow learner. What's going on here? Simon, son of John, do you what? Love me. Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then said, Feed my what? Feed my sheep. It it almost feels like Jesus has set up this whole situation. I mean, to to remind Peter of his failure. Because if you look in the Greek, that word charcoal fire is used only one other place in John 18, 18. 
It refers to the charcoal fire in the courtyard where Peter denied the Lord. And so, man, over a charcoal fire, and then all of a sudden, Jesus asked this question over and over again. Not over and over again, but three times, which again, Peter denied Christ three times. And in the Greek, you'd see that Jesus asked Peter if he was, has this unconditional love, this agape love, and Peter responds with more of a brotherly friendship love. And it appears Jesus is trying to get him to understand he must love Jesus unconditional and that Jesus' love is unconditional. And, and I think it's taking Peter a little bit of time to, to process this, to get this. Jesus is trying to show Peter that the basis of his acceptance is not his performance. Anybody struggle with that? I, I, I feel like we all kind of struggle with that at times. We feel like, you know what, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this for Jesus to truly love me and accept me. But let me tell you, Jesus has an unconditional love for you. He died on the cross. His blood was shed for you. He rose from the dead. He's extended grace for you. Even when you mess up over and over, he's there for you. Jesus is showing Peter that his failure was, just, was not just something that he did, that his failure was just something he did, but not who he was. Jesus says, you can rebound from fail failure. Peter says, he says, Peter, you will feed my sheep. You will care for my sheep. You're, you will be a shepherd to my flock. You will lead the church. Peter, despite messing up, despite failing me, guess what? I can use you. And that God's speaking to some of you this morning. Some of you, you feel beaten up and you feel like a failure. And you think, man, how can God use me? You just don't understand my life. And I say this, God has used people who have failed throughout the Bible time and time again. And he can use you. And some of you need to hear that. The advocate is telling you, hey, God's not done with you yet. That's just part of your story that God can and will continue to use people who have failed. The question is, will you rebound from failure? When I look at this story, I believe that forgiveness is written all over it. Forgiveness is written all over it. We see that Jesus extends forgiveness to Peter. And we see that Peter extends, accepts the forgiveness. But forgiveness is hard, isn't it? Forgiveness is, is messy and it's difficult and it's not easy. And sometimes there's people who hurt me and it's hard for me to want to forgive. And, and I was listening to Kyle Ottoman this, this week and, and he asked this question. He said, how does the Lord forgive? And then he said, do we have to make things right for God to forgive? Do we have to earn God's forgiveness by proving that we've changed? Does God say, give it a year or two to see if you really are different? Because often that's what I'm tempted to do. I'm like, hey, I might forgive you if I see that you've changed, but, but that's so difficult for us to do. And the answer to, none of those, or to all those questions is no. God, that's not how God forgives. God extends his forgiveness to us freely. It cost him, but he extended it to us freely. God is the model for our forgiveness. Forgiveness flows. God forgives us, and that forgiveness overflows from our lives to others. The Bible connects the forgiveness we need to give to the forgiveness we receive. Colossians 3.13 says, Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord what? Forgave you. You put your name right there. So that you must forgive who? 
Ouch. Right? Sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes that's hard. You, you, you're, you, you can say forgiveness in church, but when I go home, I'm thinking, you know what? There are some people in my life that's hard to forgive. And you, some of you are saying, well, what about the unfaithful spouse? What about the abusive relative? What about the gossiping friend? What about the things that, have said, that people have said to me? What about my pain and what about my hurt? And you're thinking, man, these people owe you something because they've hurt you in such a powerful way. You think, man, they, they cost me part of my life. They've cost me a lot of time. They've cost me money. They've cost me my marriage. They've cost me all of this in my life. But I think we have to get to the point, and, and let's see it up on the next slide, that we got to realize that forgiveness is not forgetting. Some of you are saying, you've heard this, hey, forgiveness is just forgetting, just act like it didn't happen. I'm trying to think of a Christian way to put this, but that's bad theology. It, forgiveness isn't forgetting. You, what you experience is real. The divorce, the pain, the suffering is real. It leaves scars. It's left a wound. But what, me, what I want you to realize is that Jesus Christ gives us the power to still forgive, even despite the wounds. It's there. Jesus had the scars. He had the nail wounds, but he was still able to forgive. Forgiveness and reconciliation are not the same. You can forgive someone. You can say, I don't wish ill will toward them, but I don't have to be their best buddy. I don't have to be their best friend. I can put some boundaries around in my life. Forgiveness is messy, and sometimes it takes time. It's a process. I wish I could give you three little steps and say, hey, you just do these things and your relationship and everything's going to be great. Here's a magic pill. You just swallow it. And you know what? Everything's going to be wonderful. But that's not how forgiveness works. The cross, the resurrection was messy. Our lives are messy. The next time you start thinking of the hurt that someone caused you, stop thinking of what was done to you and start thinking what's been done for you. Make a decision to forgive. And keep on forgiving that person who has wounded you. That's tough, isn't it? Instead of thinking about what's been done to you, which that tends to be what happens, I want you to think about what has been done for you, how Jesus Christ died for you. He shed his blood. He was beaten for you. Sometimes that person that has hurt you the most is yourself. Peter struggling with his failure. I, 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 sometimes I will beat myself up over and over again. And sometimes I have to extend that grace to me, realizing that Jesus even forgave me.